Matthew chapter 2, verses, starting at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, according, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Oh, hello. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> uh, it's great to be with you. Um, Happy New Year's Eve as well. Um, what a great thing it is that as a church family, we get to spend the last day of the year uh, together, worshipping God, sitting under his word. Um, by the way, my name's Gordon, and uh, welcome to St. Stephen's. Uh, welcome to you if you're new or visiting. It's great to have you here. Um, it's the last day of the year, and I don't know if you've seen things going around, being like, you know, how many times this year have you spent money on coffee, all that kind of stuff. How many times have you watched TV this year? That, that kind of got me thinking about how many times have I visited Wikipedia this year? I don't know why I was thinking that, uh, but I do use Wikipedia a lot. You know when you're watching something on TV and someone comes up that looks a bit familiar, and so you're trying to work out who they are, so you Google the show and you, it takes you to Wikipedia and you read up on this person. 
Uh, actually, for me, it's uh, football players, soccer players. I like watching them, and then I'm like, oh, this guy's interesting. Maybe I look him up on Wikipedia. And so, do you know when you, I don't know if you are on Wikipedia much, but when you go to someone's Wikipedia page, there is this drop-down menu uh, which says early life. Uh, that's a screenshot of a soccer player that I was looking at. Um, it's got their club career and all that. That's not important, but early life. Um, that's pretty interesting. Uh, it's not just footballers, but all celebrities. I find it quite interesting to read about their childhood and the childhood of someone famous because you learn a lot about someone through their childhood experiences, um, their childhood. I mean, think about yourself. Um, there were things and events in your childhood, right, that have made you who you are now. Is that correct? Um, for me, uh, you know, migrating here from Hong Kong as a young boy, massive moment in my childhood uh, that has shaped who I am now. And, you know, growing up in this part of Sydney as well, all of this is deeply connected to who I am now, the person that I am now. Uh, my dad, I was thinking about him, he had a very different childhood to me. He grew up in a very poor part of Hong Kong, um, quite a dangerous part actually of Hong Kong. I don't know if you've heard of the place Kowloon City. Um, there's lots of stories you can read about Kowloon City. He was raised up there uh, by my grandma, single mum, uh, three kids, uh, poor family. Uh, but all of that experience as a child has made uh, him who he is now. See, we're all deeply connected to our childhood. And you know, that's why people are a bit anxious about how their kids will be brought up, right? You know, they want to find the best neighborhood, uh, the best education, the best opportunities. You know why? Because our childhood is deeply connected to who we'll be as adults, uh, as, as people. Now, brothers and sisters, today we're looking at Jesus' childhood. Our passage today that Angela read for us is all about the key events in Jesus' childhood, our Messiah's childhood. And these events that we read are actually unique to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, none of the other Gospel writers include them. Uh, but Matthew has chosen to include this, to record this, not just to tell us about the kind of Messiah Jesus will be, but something actually much more fundamental than that. He wants to tell us who Jesus is as a person. Who Jesus is as a person. See, just like your childhood events are deeply connected to who you are now, these childhood, these childhood events that we read are deeply connected to who Jesus is. But as Angela was reading, did you notice that Matthew wasn't just concerned about what happened, you know, the historical events of what happened, but actually something much bigger than that? See, the Jesus of historical, the Jesus of history is important. That he was a real historical person, fundamental to what we as Christians believe. But it's more than just history. See, we see here in Matthew 2, not just the Jesus of history, but the Jesus of prophecy. Now, did you notice a bit of a pattern in this passage that Angela was reading for us? So, there's the first event, the first historical event. Jesus' family flees to Egypt. That's history. But at the end of that little section, verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. And this pattern, this basic pattern, it repeats throughout this passage. I've got a bit of an outline there. 
See, Matthew really wants us to know that these historical events of Jesus' childhood was a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Prophecy is what God says about history, uh, what God says will happen in the future, uh, what God says has happened in the past, uh, and what God says about why this is happening in the present. And friends, as we read this passage, as we explore this passage, I think it will actually challenge us and teach us about how to approach Old Testament prophecies. See, often we're tempted uh, to read these Old Testament prophecies as a bit of like a checklist, you know, that just needs to be ticked off one by one. But that's actually a very one-dimensional view of how God speaks to us in the Old Testament. The way he speaks to us, it's much richer and much more beautiful than that. And so I pray that we'll leave today, um, the last day of the year, with a richer and more beautiful picture of who Jesus is as we look into why God has, you know, through Matthew, given us this story of the childhood of our Messiah. So let's, let's pray for that. Father God, as we finish this year together as a church family, help us to once again look at your Son, our Saviour and Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Open our hearts and our minds to your word uh, and to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, so we are at point one um, and at verse 13. Uh, let me read this. When they had gone, so that's the Magi from the previous story, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Uh, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Uh, the first significant event in Jesus' childhood is him as a refugee, as Pippi showed us before. Having been told that there is another king in Jesus, King Herod is out to kill him, if you remember. Uh, so Joseph takes a family and they make this perilous journey uh, in the night to a safe country. A journey not unlike uh, millions uh, made uh, throughout history by people who have been refugees. Now, what impact do you think that would have had on Jesus as he was growing up? Now, we don't know how long he is there in Egypt, probably at least a few years before Herod dies, right? And actually, the history books say that there was a lot of Jewish people. There was a Jewish community in Egypt at that time. And so Jesus, Jesus he might have lived his early childhood you know, in a minority community, in a foreign country, you know, in between cultures, in between languages. But though Jesus probably wasn't the only Jew living, uh, you know, seeking refuge in Egypt at the time, and even though he definitely wasn't the only refugee ever in the history of our world, his experience was unique, wasn't it? Firstly, this only happens, this story happens only because God sends an angel to him, right? To, to Joseph, sorry, not to um, to Joseph, you know, it's a pretty unique experience. And so what are we supposed to see about that? Are we supposed to see this as God protecting the Messiah? I think so. What about, is God protecting his son? Is that what's going on here? Is that what verse 15 is about? Out of Egypt I called my son. See, this is what Matthew includes, and it's the first of our prophecy fulfillment statements that are in this passage. And if you look at your footnote there, this is a quote from 
Hosea, uh, from Hosea chapter 11. So what's going on here? Why does Matthew pause the story to tell us this? Well, he's telling us that what's happening here is more than just history, but what God himself is saying about history. See, it'd be very easy to go, okay, Jesus, one, you know, he went down to Egypt, that happened, and two, wow, look, back, you know, thousands of years ago, God put this prophecy into Hosea's mouth a really long time ago that, you know, out of Egypt he'll call his son, and he is the son of God coming out of Egypt. One and two, put them together, bam, bam. Wow, this shows God's amazing sovereign foresight and control over all of history. And yes, that's true. Praise God for that. Praise God that he is like that. But there's much more to this than that. See, prophecy and fulfillment is more than just ticking off one-to-one events. Um, It's actually quite an unhelpful way of approaching the Old Testament. See, this passage that Matthew's quoting, Hosea chapter 11, it actually recounts the sad story between God and Israel. Let me put up the original quote. It says, When Israel was a child, uh, this is God talking, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That blue bit is the bit that Matthew quotes. But notice the next verse that follows. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, that's the idols, and they burnt incense to images. See, this story, this sad story between God and Israel goes like this. Despite being saved by God out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt through the events of the Exodus, Israel's story with God is a complete tragedy. They will be remembered as the people who betrayed and rejected their own God, the God who had saved them. And so when Matthew reflects on this, uh, on this story, as he tells um, this and this, as he tells the, the story of Jesus going down to Egypt, he's making a big point. He's saying that Jesus is and Jesus will be the true Israelite. What does this mean? See, Jesus follows the footsteps of the nation of Israel in going down to Egypt. But unlike the Israelites who reject and betray God, this true Israelite, Jesus, he will live his whole life in full obedience to God's law and God's command. He will be the only Israelite to truly love God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength. He will be the only Israelite to love his neighbor as himself, as God uh, required. See, this is essential not just to the book of Matthew, it's actually essential to what we believe in the gospel. See, your salvation and my salvation, it doesn't depend on what we do, on what you do. It doesn't depend on you keeping God's laws and commandments. It depends only on the perfect obedience of Christ, the true Israelite who perfectly lived and perfectly loved the way God wanted and demanded us to. That's what Matthew is hinting at. Now, the next event in our passage is a really horrible one, isn't it? Uh, It's Herod's massacre of the innocent boys in verse 16. Now, if you you did a a Wikipedia search of Herod the Great, or if you talked to a historian, 
Now, I tell you that this guy was an absolute villain. Uh, this massacre that we read um, in verse 16, it's one of many brutal and wicked things that this man did. Uh, if you, you know, he actually uh, included executing his own family members um, for fear of his own crown. But this raises quite a big question, doesn't it? You know, why was something like this, the innocent slaughter of young boys, why was this allowed to happen? Particularly when we read this in the very next verse. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. See, why would Matthew say this after recording such a horrible event? Is he implying that God is responsible? Is that how prophecy and fulfillment work? You know, since God prophesied this, then this was bound to happen. It's a massive question, isn't it? Actually, this is one of the many questions. This is one of the biggest questions. How does God and evil relate? It's one of the questions that always comes up when people, people come to our bring courses. How does God and evil relate? How does God allow evil to happen? And I wonder how you feel about this question. See, this is why it's unhelpful to have that one-dimensional view about how God works through prophecy. You know, the one-to-one ticking off the box. See, God is not the agent of this horrible massacre in Bethlehem. Herod is not a puppet that's controlled by God, possessed by God, as he did this, as he executed this evil act. It's not like God programs history, you know, programs all the instructions for all the characters that are in history, as involved in history, and then he kind of sits back, presses play, and then history just kind of unfolds. It plays itself out, and we're all puppets controlled. We, we don't have any agency. That's not how it works. See, what happens in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, is truly horrific. And yet this incident, it causes Matthew, the gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to recall another horrific event that occurred in the same city of Bethlehem that was spoken about in Jeremiah chapter 31. And what Jeremiah says that Matthew quotes in verse 15 of chapter 31 is this. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. See, Bethlehem was where Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, That was where she died and was buried. And so for the Israelites, Bethlehem was not just associated with King David, but also with Rachel. And in the time of Jeremiah, around 587 BC, uh, the empire of Babylon came in and took a whole lot of the population from Judah and from Bethlehem captive back to Babylon. And that's why Rachel's crying. That's why Rachel's crying. Her people have been taken away from her. But this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, it actually moves into a word of hope. See, the very next verses are a word of hope. It says this, this is what the Lord says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. God says here, you're crying now, but one day you'll stop crying. One day there'll be no more tears. One day the crying will stop. And that's the day of the Messiah. 
That's the day the Messiah, the Lord himself, will come back. Do you see why Matthew reflects on this prophecy as he retells what Herod is doing here? See, Jesus, the Messiah, will be the one to end all crying, the one to end all evil, the one to end all injustice. But not just that. See, in the same way that Jesus' childhood was associated with this event that shed many tears, Jesus himself, as a person, as a man, will be a man that cries the tears of someone who himself is a victim of evil and injustice and suffering. Think of Gethsemane, the tears that he shed there. He was the man of sorrows. Jesus was the man of sorrows. And, and friends, that's how he'll put an end to all our tears and all evil and all injustice. See, at the heart of Jesus' mission to end all evil and all injustice will be his own horrific death on the cross. And that's what Matthew is hinting at here as well. And so our last key event in Jesus' childhood uh, that's here for us is in verses 19 to 23. And again, in the story, uh, the angel comes to Joseph and tells him it's now safe to go back to Israel. Joseph obeys, which, you know, you've got to give him credit for. Throughout this passage, he just wholeheartedly obeys what God tells him to do through the angel. And Matthew tells us that Herod's son, Archelaus, um, who, by the way, was basically a mini version of his dad, very erratic, very aggressive, uh, this man was now the king of Judea. And so this makes Joseph not want to go back to Judea. And so the focus of this little section is, where will this young family settle down to live? You know, imagine a young family looking at realestate.com, trying to work out where to live. You know, where are the best schools in the area? Where's the safest, most family-friendly suburb out there? Where's the most affordable suburb for us? What neighborhood will the Messiah of the world be brought up? And the answer that we're given is this. The Messiah of the world will be brought up in a backwater, nobody town called Nazareth, uh, which is in itself in a backwater, nobody state called Galilee. But you see again that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is what Matthew says. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking, there's an actual quote, why is there no actual quote here from the Old Testament like the other examples that Matthew gives? And notice, it's through the prophets, not prophet. Prophets, plural, not prophet, singular. And if you did a search through the Old Testament, there's nowhere to be found this quote. There's nowhere even to be found this word Nazarene. So is Matthew just making all this up? Uh, note, by the way, that Nazarene is not to be confused with the word Nazarite. Uh, a Nazarite was a special type of Israelite with you know, long hair, very strong, uh, drank no wine. Uh, famous one was Samson in the Old Testament. That's not Nazarene, not the same word. A Nazarene just means someone uh, who comes from the town of Nazareth. And that's the point. That's the point. See, to be called a Nazarene is actually to be labelled as someone of shame and insignificance. To be called a Nazarene was to be called someone who would be despised 
by everyone else. It was, I guess, a derogatory term, a label of shame and insignificance. And that's what Jesus grew up and carried with all his life, that label of shame and insignificance. That's what Jesus carried his whole life. That's what he grew up with. And that's what the prophets, not just one prophet, but all the prophets spoke about. The picture that they painted. So for example, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Or Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. And one more, Isaiah 49, verse 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You see, friends, that the Old Testament prophecy, again, is not one-to-one fulfillment. It's about painting a picture. And it paints this picture of the Messiah. And the picture of the Messiah that's painted for us, the picture of the Messiah that we see in Jesus, the person himself, is not one of worldly success. It's not one of worldly significance. It's not one of nobility or class or worldly strength or power but the opposite. But this is the Messiah that God has chosen for us. This is the Messiah that God has chosen. Do you see this here, particularly in this one? Not just in Isaiah, but back here in Matthew. This is the Messiah that God chose, that God sent, that God protected. Someone who would be despised by the world. Someone who would grow up in weakness. Someone who would be associated with pain and suffering. And friends, I think this is a challenge for us as the disciples, as the followers of this kind of Messiah. See, we live in a world that tempts us every minute of every day to value and chase after personal success, to chase after personal achievement, significance, status, class, comfort, all those things. We live in a world that tempts us at the same time, every minute of every day, tempts us to avoid and run away and despise shame and pain, discomfort, weakness, suffering, insignificance. As you look back on 2023, you see that in your year, this running away, running away from this, chasing after this. Was your year a year of worldly success, worldly significance? Did this year make you significant? If it was, then great. Praise God for that. Give him the glory. But here the challenge in this passage as well. All this stuff is not really what God cares about. God doesn't see as the world sees. But maybe your year was the opposite. Maybe your year was a year that spent in weakness and pain and suffering and insignificance. If that was your year, you know, weakness, suffering, insignificance. I hope you see the comfort here in Christ. See, we don't have a Messiah who can't sympathize with our weakness, 
But we have one in Jesus who knows so deeply what it means to feel despised, to be weak, to be insignificant, to be unloved, to be rejected. We have a Lord who suffered hardship even as a child. And as we finish the year as a church family, this is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see. If you're a disciple of this Lord Jesus Christ, if you follow this Messiah, then you follow someone who chose worldly weakness over worldly strength. And you follow a Messiah who chose to be despised by the world rather than to rule it like a tyrant. And you follow a Messiah who chose pain and suffering and even death on the cross to save us. This is the Messiah we follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word and the richness of your grace to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. And as we finish the year, grow us closer to you in our hearts. And by your spirit, help us to love the world less and to love you more because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.